0: I invite you to open up your Bibles to the New Testament. We're going to read two passages. First of all, from Paul's letter to the Galatians, and then we're going to turn back a bit and read from 2 Corinthians. So first of all, Galatians, the last chapter of that letter, Galatians 6. Paul's concluding words to the churches of Galatia, Galatians 6. Galatians six, eleven through eighteen. There, Galatians six eleven, we read the word. We read the word of God as follows: See with with what large letters I am writing to you, with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Now let's turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll read from there into chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 4. Starting at verse 13. And there we read the word of God as follows. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So far the reading of God's word. Let's take a response to this from Psalm 116. In our sermon this afternoon, we'll look at the doctrine of the word of God as we summarize and confess it in Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read that Lord's Day together. That's on page 530 in your book of praise. A number of question and answers. There the confessing church asks, Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death. Of the Son of God. Why was He buried? His burial testified, testified that He had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified put to death and buried with him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness why is there added he descended into hell in my greatest sorrows and temptations i may be assured and comforted that by lord jesus christ by his unspeakable anguish pain terror and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Let's sing after the sermon from hymn 44, 1, 3, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of the Mayan bee? They're found in Mexico, for instance. You know what's special about the Mayan bee? The Mayan bee is one of the few bees without a stinger. So they're completely harmless. In fact, I was once there with my wife, and our guide who was giving the tour said that the locals call these bees the grandma Bees. Maybe because grandmas sometimes don't have teeth. Certainly true in Mexico. Maybe because like grandmas, they're sweet and like to spoil you. In the first letter of Corinthians, we read from two Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul talks about something that no longer has a sting. Like a bee, you might expect it to have one. But yet it doesn't. It's found, it's feared everywhere. But yet it's something the Christian does not have to be afraid of. What is it? The answer is quite amazing death. In fact, Paul gives a kind of taunting song at the end of that chapter Where, O death, is now your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's gone. It may still seem like death is victorious over mankind. The ratio is one for one. But Christians can look even at death and sort of sing a kind of mocking and taunting song. You know, like you might dance over a conquered enemy, knowing that they're not a threat anymore. Death is as harmless as a Mayan bee. That's what we confess this afternoon in the Catechism. Our Lord Jesus Christ suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried. Through this, you might say, he took the sting. So that when we have to come face to face with suffering, death, being buried, we no longer have to be afraid. How can that be? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he then backtracks. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Can death really lose its stinger? Has death lost its sting? I mean, Christians, too, they die like anybody else. But Paul says the sting of death is sin. Sin for death gets its power from. If sin's power then has been broken and dealt with, and it has in Jesus Christ, if you are no longer under the law, the law with its condemnation and its commands, but if you can live in Jesus Christ, then you and I can sing a song of victory over things like death that do seem to have the victory over mankind. I put the sermon under that theme. The Christian looks to Christ and sings. And we'll see that we have victory over death, we have victory over sin, and even victory over hell. In our creed and in our catechism, here in Lord's Day 16, we stress that our Savior truly died. That he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Dead, buried, descended into hell. In a very short creed, because we're dealing with the Apostles' Creed here, that's quite a few words to deal with the reality of Christ's death. In the last centuries, some have proposed the idea... The death of Christ was not real. He was just in a coma, let's say. That explains his resurrection. He only appeared to die. You might wonder if Christ only was in a coma of sorts. I mean, why didn't the Jewish leaders, already in the first century, raise this as a possibility? There is no evidence that anybody in the ancient world thought that the death of Christ was not real. Instead, there's that lie, the disciples stole the body, something like that. All agree, there is no doubt here, Christ truly died. And we need to stress that. But then in the catechism, in our first question and answer, we ask, well, why? Why did Christ physically have to die? Had He already Suffered in Gethsemane and on the cross. Didn't he even on the cross to say, it is finished? Why can't he just sort of ascend into heaven after all that? Like Enoch or Elijah? But you know, God had said in the very beginning, in the first book of the Bible, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. By the way, That phrase, the day you eat of it, simply may be a Hebrew way of saying, this will absolutely happen. There is no way that you will avoid it. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 6, says the wages of sin is death. Christ then has to endure all the consequences of our sin He does have to die. The animal sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be slain. Blood had to be poured out for blood guiltiness to be taken away. Christ has to be obedient unto death. Sometimes you and I might accept, let's say, only 80%. Someone doesn't have to do everything that we ask. But God will not bend His justice. It's a beautiful thing. In no way does our God sort of fudge on our sin. What it's all about. What it deserves. No, because of the justice and truth of God. Satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. And so, our Lord Jesus Christ dies. He's laid in a tomb. That too testifies that he had really died. and It also fulfills prophecy. Isaiah 53, 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death. Christ truly bears then our sin and all of its consequences. And he triumphs over it all. Also for us. Well, then there's a natural question, question forty-two there in a heartbreak catechism. Okay, since Christ has died for us, then why do we still have to die? And we answer, our death is not a payment for a sin, but is an entrance into eternal life. Now, isn't this a beautiful thing? Our Savior has such victory that death, which is the just condemnation of God over our sin, death is transformed and now serves the risen Savior and His purposes. Death, an entrance into eternal life. Can you imagine those two things somehow being put together? Death, eternal life. This is how great the victory of Jesus Christ is. David was victorious over Goliath. But Goliath was just there, flat on the ground in a heap. The Lord Jesus Christ is so victorious over death that death now serves him. And does his will as he brings salvation for the elect. Death frees us of living in this broken, fallen world. I think some of us as we get older, we feel it even in our bodies how frail we can be. Death has a wonderful way of freeing us from sicknesses and illnesses. All those kinds of things that we have to deal with in this life. But the Christian should have an even greater perspective. That death frees us from the reality, from the existence of sin. When a believer dies, sin finally dies. It doesn't that too? The older we get. Become more and more sweeter and beautiful. Perhaps you see how pervasive sin is. Consider this sort of comparison: As somebody who has a handicap, disability. You know, imagine somebody at the lighthouse. You know, who has a specific challenge. I think it's beautiful still. How the Lord can use their disability to, in a beautiful way, show his grace and goodness and to challenge the rest of us, too, with their challenges. You know, sometimes when I take out, you know, somebody from the lighthouse uh, for their birthday, that sort of thing, I, I, I get to do that. I wonder, what would they be like without their disability. You know, whether they're Down syndrome, what kind of person would they be? What sort of things would they tackle? Who would they have become in life? In a way, that is true, though, for all of us. We all are the handicapped ones. We all have sin syndrome. And the day we die is the day we are set free. From this syndrome. And the day we are transformed. To be our true selves. That's what the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That chapter that we read. First of all there he talks about. Receiving a home. Not built with human hands. The Apostle Paul. He was a tent maker. He knew a thing two about tents. And here he says, this life, no matter who we are, and no matter what sort of riches we have, we are all like living in a tent. Maybe you're okay with tenting. Maybe you have some plans for the the summer. But if you had to live in a tent, I mean, just imagine the windstorm of a few weeks ago. You don't want to live in a tent When we die, says the Apostle Paul, finally the tent of this life, this existence is taken down. And we have a home not built with human hands. A home prepared by God. We can only imagine what that is like. Isn't it true that in this life, I think of all all of us, first of all, we, we yearn to find a home. I mean, a home, you know, where you belong. A place of stability and security. Yet we also are very conscious of the fact that we live in a tent. That life is frail and fleeting. When we die, we receive a home Built by God. That is what it is like. When believers pass away. They enter a home. A heavenly home. Home. You finally feel. This is where you belong. A place of security and stability. In the presence of God. Even. Imagine. To have all your sin and everything about sin completely removed. Not a single speck of sin on you. And then to be brought into the presence of God. The God who in the parable of the prodigal son is the father who you know runs out to his son and puts his arms around his son and who Kisses his son warmly as a sign of acceptance and fellowship. To know God like that. That you belong to God and he belongs to you. What an amazing transformation. That takes us to our second point. So we have great riches to ponder when we leave this mortal and frail life. But the catechism also in question 43 goes on to say, that even already here and now, when we think about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is not just a future thing. It is a very present thing as well. Paul says in Galatians in the chapter before, the one that we read those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Very clearly in the Word of God, crucifixion is not just something that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ, but happens to everyone who believes in Him. That we too are crucified. That our old sinful nature, its power, has been broken. Or in Romans chapter 6, don't you know that all of us, all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Or 2 Corinthians 5, at the end of that passage that we read, one died for all, and then Paul continues, therefore all died. All died, past tense. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So when we consider Golgotha, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to put ourselves into that scene and realize that in Jesus Christ, as he was crucified, our old sinful selves were also crucified. And the life of the Christian is now someone who gets in step with what Christ has already done and secured. A Christian is someone who learns to put old ways behind them because they have been put aside in Jesus Christ. And who now lives in new ways because in Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead, we too have been raised to a new life. A Christian who looks at sin sort of longingly, who wants to dabble in sin. See, that, that goes contrary to the whole focus of your life as a Christian. That's like putting a cast back on your leg when it's already been healed. That's like pretending it's not the 21st century and living in a shack without power and plumbing. A Christian needs to consider themselves as dead to sin. To say no to sin then and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Or look at the letter of Galatians. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the threat of the Judaizers. The Judaizers, you might know, they were Christians of a sort, but who yet wanted to go back to the Old Testament law and they, among other things, really stressed the necessity of circumcision. Paul, instead, boasts about the cross of Christ. And in the passage that we read, he says, through the cross of Christ, the whole world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For the Apostle Paul, the cross of Christ meant a clear break with the whole way of living that you see in the world, that you see in the Judaizers as well. No longer should we be tempted to live as the world does. where the focus so often is on what you can do, putting confidence in yourself. The Judaizers, with their stress on circumcision, that was the same sort of thing as everybody else in the world. Confidence again in something that you can see and do rather than in the cross of Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul, because he knows what Jesus Christ has done, wants to live in entirely in a different way. Or constantly he looks to Jesus Christ. He's done with that life of trying to prove himself or to base life on something that he has done. Instead, he wants to live for his Savior. And the Apostle Paul stresses as well in the letter to the Galatians. You see, the Judaizers with their stress on circumcision, they were also caving in to pressures, especially from Jewish leaders. They were not arousing the ire of. Jewish leaders. And the Apostle Paul says, not only has he been crucified to the world, but the world has been crucified to him. That means as a Christian, he is no longer concerned as well with what the world thinks of him. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul has indifference to the world. The the world put to death the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do these Judaizers feel that they need to bow to pressure from the world or from Jewish leaders? Why are you and I so quick to obsess with everything that our world around us obsesses with? Why are we so quick to adopt its agenda the world crucified Christ. That must mean we need, to take a clear, we need to make a clear break with everything that our world stands for and believes in, all it lives for, all its attempt to find life, all its wisdom. We dare call it, in the light of the cross of Christ, foolishness and stupidity. And that takes us to our third point. This is the last question and answer here. Question and answer 44 in our catechism. You might know it generated quite a bit of discussion over the years. The question, the article in our creed: he descended into hell. Did Christ ascend, d- descend into hell? And when did he do that? In the first centuries, even like I want to say the year three or four hundred AD, there were already sort of Christian legends about Christ going to hell and there, after his death, triumphing. Presenting his victory, perhaps releasing some who were still under the power of the devil. So the idea that Christ literally went to hell at some point goes way back. But there were some in the early church though, some early church fathers already then who said, no, 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 this phrase descended into hell in the creed, it simply means Christ died. People often talk about death as a descending. You descend into the grave. Christ descended into Sheol, you might say in Old Testament language. He did not, though, descend into hell after his crucifixion. In our Hatterbury Catechism, we explain this as a reference to Christ's agony on the cross. The kind of thing that we remember, especially on Good Friday. When Christ on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is when he descends into hell. John Calvin promoted that line of interpretation. That's why we have it in our Heidelberg Catechism. If I dare say, I think it is an incorrect view of the original sense of the Apostles' Creed. However, that idea is not unscriptural, of course. That Christ did suffer unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony on the cross. That he suffered hell when he suffered. And that is good for us to confess and remember. It's good for us to remember and confess that. Because there are times in our lives, for instance, when, me, when we may be scared, let's say, when it comes to the state of our soul. There's nothing about being a Christian that means that you will be immune from great moments of anguish and trouble. Martin Luther often had this. And there is a particular German word too behind the original German of the Heidelberg Catechism, Anfechtung. And that's what we translate there as uh, temptation. It means a kind of despair when you think that God himself has perhaps turned his back to you where you feel completely alone. Maybe when you feel that you have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. What do we do in those sorts of times when we feel it's very, very dark? Do we just sort of say, well, look at the bright side. Hopefully it's not that bad. Something like that. Now that's what question and answer 44 speaks to, in my greatest sorrows and temptations, what do I do? I remind myself, the Lord Jesus Christ descended into hell so that I might not. And my life is not descending into hell. Although I might feel that it is terrible. Christ endured hell so that I may not. Consider the book of Job for a moment. In the book of Job, you learn about the devil and the devil's particular strategy as well to try to pull us from God. The devil brings upon Job one catastrophe after another. But in a way, all of those disasters, even losing his own children, his own health, are but a stepping stone to something even more. That Job would one day think God. God has turned his back from me entirely. I'm foolish to rely upon him. There's a devil who loves to tempt us in that way. To undermine the idea that God could love us and that we could love him as well. Let's fight off all the fiery darts of the devil with the truth of our confession here. He descended into hell. He descended into hell. If the Lord Jesus Christ descended into hell for us, for me, what can stand in the way of God loving me, God showing his power in my life? Will his love let go of us in the midst of trouble or persecution or danger or sword will God ever change his mind and think I'm done I'm done with these people and all their sins and all their constant rebellion against me now Christ the son endured that sin and rebellion And so in all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Sometimes the victory is won, but just barely won. You might have to make sacrifices. For instance, let's say if you're having a game of chess or something like that. That is never the case with our God. Never the case with our salvation. In Jesus Christ. The Son came to endure all our sin and all its consequences so that there might be overwhelming victory, so that death even might serve his purposes, so that even our sinfulness not to justify sin in any way, but even our sinfulness would serve his purposes so that songs will be sung to him forever. Amen.